No matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead Too, a podcast about our shared inevitable demise. I am your host, John Toyson, and joining me again this week on the program is... Nobody. That's right, this week on the program, it is the... 10th part in my in-depth look at funerals, what they are, why we do them, how we do them, and this actually is going to be the last chapter in it for now until I revisit the subject at a later date, having done a much deeper dive into other cultural idiosyncrasies of it because, uh, frankly, I want to get back on track with some other stuff. But to address what I'm talking about before just dismissing it, what I want to talk about today is being a pallbearer what that is, how we do it, why we do it, all that jazz. So, before I get into that, let me first say, um, this is, as always, a podcast about our shared inevitable demise. It is about the fact that no matter in life what you try to do, as the theme song says, you're dead too. So, I've been examining funeral customs and rites for uh, the better part of, well, no, for ten episodes now. And... It's been incredibly informative, and I've really enjoyed the process. However, um, I want to get back to some more esoteric stuff, some more kind of abstract, uh, maybe some more spiritual stuff, just to see what that side of the equation is like, because I've really covered some, not granular, but like, you know, more physical aspects to what the dying process is, and I don't want to get horse blinders on, you know? I want to focus more on what death and dying is, and not just this one aspect of it. So it's been really good for me to be able to kind of dig into this and do a deep dive on it. I've really enjoyed the process, and hopefully other people have too. Uh, but as far as, you know, getting focused and going down uh, a rabbit hole here, I want to make sure that I pull up and out of this before I get just absurdly focused. So I think 10 episodes in a row, you know, a 10-part series on funerals, what they are, how they work, why we do them in America, I think that's deep enough for now. I'm certainly happy to revisit in the future, but I'd like to be able to focus on other cultures and not just Western American ideals and values when it comes to funerals, because uh, this is, you know, I'm an American in the Midwest, and I have a very specific particular take on what funerals are and how we experience them, so I don't want to just speak off the cuff and uh, irreverently, you know, without the proper insight or uh, forethought. You know, I, I want to be able to really prepare and plan these things, and I wanted to be able to kind of do a, a broader look at what I know funerals to be before I reach into that. So this way, I'm not just uh, I'm not just shooting from the hip. You know, I'm able to figure out what is it I'd like to say. I want to be able to plan this out and be able to give consistent content that's uh, of a higher caliber, rather than just kind of figuring out. Hmm, what are we going to talk about this week? I wonder if we could talk about no. So this week, uh, I wanted to finish up with something that I've actually done, which is being a pallbearer. And before I get into that, I uh, just want to say again, as always. Thank you for listening. It always means the world to me that anybody takes time out of the day to listen to this, especially considering um, I know how much of a niche, niche, good lord, how much of a niche subject this is. Um, I can feel people, you know, pull away from this when I talk about it in uh, polite company or what I think of as, like, 
civilian company where I'm not surrounded by other people who are interested in this subject matter. It's definitely not uh, not for everybody, and I can appreciate that, and that's really, frankly, why I'm sitting here in my basement talking to uh, the internet at large, because sometimes I don't have a guest lined up, and I don't want to just randomly ask, uh, you, come in here and talk. Uh, you know, certainly comfortable doing that. Um, that's been a strength of mine for uh, <laughs> navigating my life, and certainly the professional world, I'm able to kind of deal with strangers in a fairly comfortable way, which maybe that's a bit sociopathic and that I can just kind of do that. But um, at the same time, I want to make sure that it's, again, I don't want to just knee-jerk my way through this. I want to be able to really dig in to do this. So um, as always, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. I know that this is extremely specific subject matter that uh, if you found this, there must be very particular reasons. So hopefully all is well with you and that it is not dire circumstances that has brought you here to this corner of the internet. Um, this is not my, uh, <laughs> what I call death perversion, capital D, capital P. Uh, this is not some kind of weird fetish, uh, not to say fetishes are weird and not to kink shame anybody. This is just to say that this is something that I know that I'm comfortable talking about at length and something that I'm curious about because frankly this is this is all that is and all that isn't, as uh, as I've talked about in previous episodes, uh, an idea that was hit upon by uh, previous guest Kevin. Th this really defines who we are and what we do, so I really don't need to dig far into my operational drive to figure this out as to why I want to do this. It's not... It really was a game-changer for me to understand that Yes, from an animalistic standpoint, a lot of what we do, uh, both instinctually and um, intentionally in our daily lives and in our culture at large and as uh, the macro of human existence, yes, a lot of it is to reproduce and to just push our genetic material further on down the evolutionary line of descendants. However, the very fact that we exist and the fact that we are here at all supposes it can not be here. You know, the fact that it is shows that it could possibly not be. Um, and that's really something that I've always wrestled with existentially, the old, you know, it's just as likely that there is nothing, that there is anything. Um, so this is why, for me, I just, I find this endlessly fascinating. So I, I just want to make sure that I'm sharing this with the world and that, uh, at worst case, I selfishly get some benefit out of exercising this uh, compulsion to look at the potential of non-existence and uh, best case somebody gets some help from it you know that there is benefit to be had for others from this so uh, that's I guess a mission statement I don't know why I'm doing that at this point in the podcast when I'm you know something like 40 episodes in but uh <laughs> That's beside the point. It's kind of a long preamble today. If you've got questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to reach out at yourdead2 on Twitter or Instagram or yourdead2 at gmail.com. Happy to interact and happy to respond with whatever the case may be. If you've got uh, basic questions of like, what is your favorite kind of sandwich? Or what would you like to have happen when you die? Happy to respond. Happy to answer. Uh, if you find something interesting that's worth noting online, let me know. Happy to incorporate it into the show. So, uh, before I do that, I should note that, yes, I am going to get an episode up for Thanksgiving uh, next week. It most likely won't be on the day of Thanksgiving because 
uh, that, you know, I've been going for Thursday postings as of late, and that's when the actual holiday is. Uh, for non-Americans out there, next week, basically, the whole country shuts down so we can all eat one kind of uh, bland meal around uh, your people, you know, your family, your your small tribal community, whatever it is. Uh, in my case, my wife and I and our little one, we go to uh, see family of mine here in the Midwest, and we share a meal and generally just talk and make jokes and kind of share some appreciation for life that we've had in the last year. And I know that there is uh, cultural concern with... <sighs> pilgrims and the morons that they were that they floated here without a real plan of how to get food and how to survive. They just didn't really think things out when it comes to coming to the new world. And the native people here saved their butts because they took pity on the poor dumb white morons who came here without proper food or clothing. And then we paid them back by uh, destroying their culture and destroying their uh, people and heritage and uh, supplanting them and claiming that this is our land. So I'm sadly well aware of that notion and I don't really like the whole celebration of Christopher Columbus aspect to it because that's obviously fraught with uh, unsavory connotation or frankly embarrassing weirdness that I'm going to get off my soapbox shortly here but I do view this as just a time to gather with people that are close to you and be grateful for the things that you have in this world which if anybody knows me if anybody's listened to this podcast long enough they know that I'm grateful for the fact that I am here at all that I'm, I'm so appreciative to just exist. This is all a cosmological joke as far as I'm concerned in the sense that this is, again, it's just as likely that there's nothing, that there's something. So the fact that I'm here and that I am relatively healthy and that I have found somebody who loves me and wants to spend their life with me and we have this little person here in the house that we've made, <laughs> like this is all the most absurd magic trick. This is all just craziness that I am... This is why I struggle in an office environment. This is the kind of stuff that um, gets in the way of, you know, filing the honest-to-God TPS reports that I had when I was in Treasury. So, anyway, uh, without further ado, let's just cut right to it. So, for the last time, for the time being... Let's put the fun back in funeral. Today, I wanted to talk about pallbearers, something that I have done, and um, I don't think it's vain or morbid to think I'll probably end up doing again. Uh, for those who don't know, in the Western American slash uh, Christian or any kind of culture that's derived or outcropped from uh, European background, Pallbearers are the ones in a funeral who actually physically transport the casket from point A to point B, whether it's um, starting from the hearse as it brings the deceased to the church or wherever you're having the funeral ceremony, uh, basically from that vehicle to the ceremony, and then from the ceremony to the place of interment, whether that's through another trip to the uh, hearse to the next site, or if that's simply outside to a cemetery directly adjacent to the church. So basically, this is the uh, group of people that moves the body that is not uh, directly related to the funeral home or, you know, funeral services. So what is a pallbearer? A pallbearer, the, the 
etymology of it uh, comes from the term funeral pall or pale, uh, rooted word of the uh, French Germanic origins and back in the 1400s or 1500s, depending how far back I'm able to go on my research here, uh, P-A-L-L or P-A-E-L-L, kind of that smushed together A-E symbol that I don't have enough knowledge to know what that's accurately called. Uh, but it is the shroud, the, the funeral pall that you would wrap the body in um, when coffins or caskets were not commonplace due to the cost and due to, frankly, widespread socioeconomic uh, inequality, which, hey, that's still a thing. We're here with that. So the people that would basically pick up the four corners of the funeral pall or the uh, burial pall, pick it up, move it from place of death, because that's typically how it worked back then, and uh, to the church, and then to the cemetery. So, typically, for people doing it, as time has progressed and as caskets have become more and more ornate, there can be more, uh, typically between four and eight. There can also be honorary pallbearers, depending on the decedent or surviving, you know, next of kin's wishes that they um, would have people involved in the funeral ceremony. But uh, literally, it's somebody who bears the pall, somebody who carries the load, somebody who carries the funeral sheet. So, um, as we do this, there are some traditions that are upheld, some more... Um, ardently than others. Otherwise, it's kind of an open thing in that it's basically kind of a fluid authority, which I found interesting. Um, I've only... Those close to me, if they're listening, hi, I'm sorry, I'm a terrible person, and I can only cop to remembering to being a pallbearer once. I don't think I've done it more than once. I've only... The only time that I can concretely say I did this... Uh, I can talk about later on in the podcast, but, um, you know, basically, as is the custom in Western-slash-American funerals, you're wearing a dark suit, and, you know, you're being somber and respectful and kind of trying to keep your grief in at least check from being an outburst. Um, that's basically the case for being a pallbearer. There's no particular special uniform or... Um, practice to do. It's basically show up <laughs> at the latest on time, or uh, hopefully early to get the lay of the land and talk to the powers that be, you know, the uh, either the presiding priest or the people from the funeral home who were there to uh, assist and figure out what are your required and uh, needed to be anticipated moves to get from A to B. So, the nuts and bolts of it is that if there's four of you, you would all be working together in a planned, orchestrated, elegant movement to lift and carry the casket out of the back of the hearse or whatever vehicle it is into the church, if it's not already there, or whatever the location is, to the front of the um, ceremony, you know, front of the church or head of the crowd or congregants, um, and then basically sit in a group there as kind of a way of recognizing we are here doing this duty, and then at the end of it, picking it back up, 
walking back out, and then, uh, as is often the case, back into the vehicle to go to the site of interment. There are some nuances to this. One is that it's not... So when it was a cloth, you know, you'd literally just grab a piece of it and yoink, just hoist it up. And that... There are pros and cons to everything. There, That's not necessarily the desired way to have that done these days. People would rather have this done in a way that is a little more reverent or respectful. Um, so, as we talked about last week with the progression from coffins to caskets, as we've done so, it's no longer just a pine box, but it's kind of an ornate uh, wooden container or vessel, which oftentimes has handles down the side of it, depending on what you're able to uh, afford for the circumstance. As So in most cases, the four people that you have designated are able to simply grab a handle, pick it up, and go. Now, there's some practical concern here about the ability to lift and the ability to carry and the ability to comport yourself in a, um, I don't, not controlled, but, you know, composed manner that if your grief is too strong or if you're feeling emotionally unsettled enough, it may be in your best interest to politely decline, but, you know, thank the family for their intention to have you as part of the process, but it's certainly understandable that you might not want to participate in it. Oftentimes, it's somebody close to the deceased who is of physical ability to do so. Um, so, for example, in my, um, I want to say stint, and that's not right or respectful, in my instance of serving as a pallbearer, it was for my grandmother who passed away, and my two brothers participated with me, and here's where I'm a horrible person. I don't remember who person number four was. Probably my dad. Can't say for certain. All I remember is doing it myself, and my brothers participating, and, um, yeah, wow. Thanksgiving's going to get awkward if they listen to this. So, sorry guys. Also, uh, remember to take the turkey out of the oven when the time is ready. So, there were four of us. Uh, we lifted and carried, and my brothers and I are all of, you know, <laughs> we're all of the same decade, so we're all ballpark uh, close age, and of uh, the physical ability to do so, I don't recall straining to lift. Granted, my grandmother was a small woman by that point, but um, I remember thinking, I don't think I have enough of this. I think somebody is doing most of the lifting here, and it's not me. So whatever corner I had, um, which was on the left side uh, walking towards the front of the church, I didn't feel like I was working particularly hard, but then again, maybe everybody else had that understanding too, where I was, you know, emotional. I felt present that day, but maybe I wasn't, I don't know, maybe I just wasn't processing in my head properly, or my body was just like, we got this, we'll just shut your brain off for a bit and walk up to the front and, you know, keep it together. But I don't remember thinking, oh no, I, I can't lift this, you know, and I'm, I'm not, anybody can see me, I'm not buff. I'm, you know, I'm a six foot tall man, but I'm not, I, crazy shape, so I don't, I, I was, I remember having concerns leading up to, but then once it started, I thought, oh, I don't, 
somebody must be doing more than me here because I don't feel like I'm doing very much. And maybe that's just my disposition in general, my default setting. I don't know. It'd be interesting to talk to my brothers about it. So, uh, fellow Toysons, uh, let me know. Or uh, please be kind to me and forgive me for airing our laundry here on the podcast. My apologies. I'll, uh, if you have objections to this, I can retroactively edit it out. So if you're hearing this, congrats. This is privileged information. Um, we did not have anything particularly out of the norm in doing so, meaning we just wore our suits and lifted and carried. There are uh, people who want the pallbearers to wear white gloves, and maybe that was the case, but again, I don't recall having done so. I feel like I would remember if that was the case, but there are people who feel that it's appropriate and better off to have white gloves on as a sign of, uh, you know, deference and reverence for the dead. And then you actually place the gloves on top of the casket as you deliver it to the front and then uh, put them back on to carry it back out. But we didn't actually do that. And what I've found in preparing for today's episode is that that particular practice of wearing the white gloves is a superstition born of the Victorian era, which... I mean, I could do an entire, another 10-part series on just the Victorian customs and practices around death because they really, that was a time in Western culture where there was this really avid fascination and focus on death and dying and spirituality. But in common practice, you would wear these white gloves because it was considered, um, you don't want to touch the, the casket or coffin, you don't want to touch the dead, that it would allow for the potential of the spirit of the deceased to enter your body, that it was somehow um, a barrier of the physical world that you were preventing from some kind of cross-contamination of the spiritual into your own personal self, which, you know, we can stand on the shoulders of giants now and look back haughtily and say, well, I, where, how, how, why would they think that? But no, it at the time, it was very reasonable, and frankly, I I don't see an issue with it now. It's simply a matter of what is the preferred practice. Um, but to further illustrate the concerns that they had at the time, it was also considered uh, extremely risky or taboo or um, ill-advised to yawn at a funeral or at a uh, burial because that opened the possibility of the spirit entering your mouth. So not that it was like you were bored or disinterested or unmoved by the deceased. There's certainly that aspect to it, but simply giving an opening of just open wide, here come the ghosts, and uh, some kind of spirit would enter you. So again, it just kind of further illustrates what life in the Victorian times was like as far as dealing with the dead and dying and deceased of how we viewed that then. So um, I didn't... uh, I didn't have that experience with the white gloves, but uh, perhaps my memory is faulty. That's certainly, as I've watched the, uh, <laughs> today is October, uh, November 21st here in 2019, and I've been watching the impeachment proceedings for the last week here in America, and i uh, certainly seen that memory is fallible. So if I need to be jogged in the right direction, let me know. Um, but, moving along... Typically, four to eight people doing the pallbearing. Um, if there is a practical concern of lifting the person, 
you're going to want to have more. Or if there was just a large family, you can certainly have more. You can have honorary uh, pallbearers as well who can simply accompany the ca uh, casket down the procession or um, just walk alongside. So the issue is um, caskets are not light, depending what they're made out of, you know, wood, some kind of laminate or metal. With the person inside, again, this gets into some kind of unpleasant um, realities of the physicality of death. You know, you're not necessarily your peak weight when you die. It's certainly possible, but oftentimes you are dying and frail as you come upon death. And I'm not going to start backpedaling and trying to say I'm painting with too broad of a brush, but let's just say you've got a dead person in the coffin or casket. You know, it's there is that weight to consider in addition to the vessel that they're in. So we're looking at anything from two to 400 pounds of mass that needs to be moved from one location to another and then back again. You have to be able to lift and transport that. So if you've got, you know, say on the lighter side, 200 pounds total, and you've got four people, well, that's not so bad. That's just... 50 pounds a person, but if we're looking at 400 pounds total or more, you know, in America, as larger and larger people are the more common uh, to be buried, you know, there is an entire industry built around uh, plus-size caskets or caskets for the overweight that there are, that's, an, that's a practicality that needs to be considered, and you simply need more pallbearers. Um, so, it's not always done just as people carrying and especially on the shoulder. You know, I've this entire time I've been talking that it's you're carrying, you know, just gripping the handle and lifting and walking. It's equally as likely that you would just be carrying it at palm height or, you know, where your arm hangs naturally. There are customs where you carried up on your shoulders. And so, again, this, this is just a physicality, a, a matter of practicality to what you're doing here. In most cultures, men or women can be pallbearers. There's not a particular um, driving split between that in what I've seen for reading anyway. If there's, uh, you know, if you're of the Mormon faith, then you there's some kind of idiosyncrasy to it where, no, it has to be men. I don't know. I'm just, in my research, this is what I've come up with so far. But again, that's why I want to look at specific faiths and practices for a more in-depth, nuanced funeral discussion rather than just shooting from the hip here and painting with too broad of a brush. So... In most terms, men or women can be pallbearers. Um, just, again, you need to be mindful of the ability to lift however much weight is distributed among the four to eight people, and then obviously wear comfortable and appropriate shoes for the circumstance. Um, not to make pointed comments, but if the, you know, you're wearing heels, it might be difficult. It might be unpleasant and uncomfortable. I, but, again, that comes down to the individual and their choice of footwear. I'm not going to cast any judgment. Another concern that I saw in my research online was controlling grief and uh, being mindful of emotional outbursts, which, frankly, uh, that felt a little sexist. I don't think that uh, women as the fairer sex, that they would somehow be just wailing and sobbing and unable to carry something. I've seen plenty of men lose it at funerals, and I've been that guy to lose it at funerals, too. It just it depends on the person and the circumstance, and I, I don't think, God, if anything... If we're going to paint with stereotypes and broad strokes here, I think mothers are the toughest, and, you know, they're, they've dealt with the most stuff. They're, I don't know, I'll get off my soapbox. So, um, but 
from the practicality of moving the casket and the deceased from point A to point B, um, there is this act of carrying and physically lifting the casket. Um, however, oftentimes these days, in moving the casket out of the hearse and being prepared for either the visitation or wake or the pre-funereal um, gathering of people, it's oftentimes on basically a roller, um, and I'm not sure in the pronunciation here, I believe it's a beer, uh, but B-I-E-R, basically not unlike a gurney that you would see that it's got um, four to eight wheels on the ground and then kind of an elevator slash um, accordion or, you know, folding mechanism to lift and then a stable level platform to have the casket placed on top of so you're able to simply basically roll the casket right out of the hearse and wheel it into the, into the building or location. Um, so it is entirely possible that if you are unable to have people who are able to lift, you know, like, <laughs> I'm going to stop uh, supposing here, but if you wanted elderly pallbearers who aren't able to lift as much, you could have this on the wheels or on the beer roller to basically... Um, you know, these people are still leading a procession of the casket through the congregants, but it's on a stable rolling platform, so it's not at risk of just dropping to the ground, because obviously everybody wants to keep that from happening. Um, so that is one way to basically carry it rather than just shouldering or lifting it up. Um, additionally, I... At the time that I was a pallbearer, I was not aware of once we had gone from open casket to closed, I recall not being certain of which way was up, in that, um, again, from last week's episode on coffins and caskets, my grandmother's was um, a rectangular shape, so there was no particular up or down designation that I recall for head or toe, you know, that it was not uh, designated from the outside that I could recall, but um, everything that I've read in all of my... Um, research on this, that it's common practice or best practice to go feet first into and out of a location simply from the practical standpoint of if there are steps to be gone down, you want to make sure that the weight is evenly distributed so that everybody can anticipate and accommodate for changes in elevation so that you're not suddenly struggling or um, awkwardly moving around trying to jostle to get everything correctly done, that um, if you go feet first, it allows for a better dispersal of the weight and you're able to prepare for that as it comes up rather than suddenly the heaviest part of the casket is suddenly down and there's momentum and gravity pulling everybody down and uh, a higher chance of something um, untoward happening. So that was an uh, interesting idiosyncrasy to it that I hadn't considered even though I've participated and done this myself in the past. Um, additionally, as I had said, it's kind of an odd position of authority in that you're expected to be able to know what to do, but you have to kind of talk your way through it, which it's... I've, ta <laughs> I've talked about my wedding in the past on this podcast, and I should be very clear that I don't in any way associate my wedding with a funeral. I just, I mean from the sense of a, a large public event where people that are important to you are gathered and you'd like to do it right the first time and not have any awkward, embarrassing slip-ups. You have a rehearsal for a wedding. You don't typically have one for a funeral. 
Now, what's interesting for me is that when I look back, so I'm 36 now. I got married. I was 27. Um, and sure, yes, I was a young man and I was confident, but I was also wanting to simply do right and not make a misstep, which gives you a sense of apprehension and you don't want to, you know, were I given the chance to do it over, I would just be a little more bold and brash and cocksure of like, this is my wedding, I'm here to celebrate my, and the, there was definitely that attitude there, but there is no such thing as a misstep when you're there to just celebrate love and uh, have the best day of your life. It, it just was a magical day of, I could break out into song and dance right now and people would just kind of go with it. And I think kind of we did actually dancing down the stairs. Anyway, that's a different story. With funerals, there is this element of people are afraid to ask questions. People are afraid to, for lack of a better term, uh, dig in. And please excuse the pun there. I don't, I, again, I don't mean that in the irreverent way. But um, of the funerals that I've attended, oftentimes I've seen people not want to be the first to breach a subject, that they're you know, the one asking about something as though it's inappropriate to do so, that we should all just be quiet and assume the priest knows what they're doing and let's all just walk in and sit down and everything will be fine. Like, no, you do actually have the the right as a person to ask, are we supposed to go in single file or, you know, should I have my better half on my arm or what are what are we doing here? What's what what is the preferred way to do this? And oftentimes simply asking, you're you're given an answer of whatever feels right to you. Now, that's with this particular uh, Western Christian-based bent that I have from my own experience, but I'm always interested to see how people handle these things. So in different family experiences that I've had, I've seen people basically just kind of like almost default to their base level operation of like, nope, after you, no, after you, I insist after you, like just this level of almost comedically polite, uh, just detachment, really. It's just, it's a fascinating thing to see people process such a heavy moment, and that's, I guess when I cut down to it, that's really why I'm, why I'm doing this in the first place, is that I just, I'm so curious as to that, because you just, you don't see that in your normal life. This is such an aberrant experience for so many people, despite the fact that everybody dies. I mean, this is typically the point in the podcast where I, you know, start going down the rabbit hole of like, why are we here and what are we doing and this, the, but it's just fascinating for me to dig into these, God, I'm sorry again for saying that, for examining what these practices are, how we get to them, why we do them, what drives us to them, because it's just very, I'm so fascinated by it. But this is a particular part of it where you have this authority as a pallbearer that you're somehow in charge or that you're leading the way and yet you you have to kind of ask you know you you don't just pick up and go literally that you mean you just there's a there's a rhyme and a reason to it whether you're waiting for a particular song to start or uh if the religious figure at the front of the congregation kind of gives you a you know, uh, <laughs> go, I'm gesturing here to nobody, uh, go ahead or, a uh, come on motion or, uh, you know, something to indicate begin. Um, again, you, there's, there's rehearsals for weddings, not really for funerals. So you have to talk about this stuff and it's, it's frankly, it's awkward, but there's, 
it's not out of morbidity or disrespect that you're asking these questions. It's just, look, we have to go from A to B. How are we supposed to get there? What's the plan here? Like what? And granted, there are people in life that don't do that. I understand that. But this is the kind of thing where you're so far deviated from what is your typical scenario in dealing with things. Unless you run into it over and over again, you don't really know how to proceed. So this is something that, you know, that's why I want to talk about this with people. Um, it's it's unique to everybody's individual experience. So it could be, you know, for World War II veterans, it could be a, a group of, uh, you know, nonagenarians who are barely able to stand themselves, who are going down the aisle and bringing along a casket on rollers, or, you know, they're in a wheelchair, or it could be um, a child carrying an urn. I've seen that as well. I mean, it's just, it whatever your planning and intention is for this service or ceremony, that's what you're able to impart onto it. It's really whatever you would like it to be. Um, particular point of trivia that I noted for this was that for um, Lee Harvey Oswald's funeral after assassinating JFK, or did he? Um, no, but for Lee Harvey Oswald's funeral, the press actually outnumbered the mourners there, which is a sad fact of his life. Um, granted, the majority of the research that I've done into Lee Harvey Oswald and the assassination of JFK was uh, built around Stephen King's amazing book, 112263, which um, kind of unrelated. If you're at all interested in that, or if you enjoy Stephen King, or historical fiction, or alternate history fiction, fascinating book. It's a doorstop. It's like a thousand pages, but absolutely fascinating. But it was sad to see how alone Lee Harvey Oswald was in his life. He just really didn't have people, he didn't have a community around him. He really was quite the loner, despite having a wife and child. Um, but as a result, you know, the press far outnumbered the mourners, and so the press served as his pallbearers, which I am so curious as to who stepped up and why, and how they felt about doing it, um, especially after having Lee Harvey Oswald unceremoniously killed by Jack Ruby, basically denying anybody the chance for further information or answers, which leads to further conspiracy theories, but that's not what this podcast is. Uh, it's, again, it's so specific to the circumstance. It's this strange moment in time that you pick a small group of people to say, you have the the honor and duty and obligation of transporting this person one last time. And it's a strange custom, but it's one that once you start examining it, I think it just becomes so much more, not pedestrian, but just manageable and digestible that it's not... Uh, when I was a kid, I my older brother and I watched a lot of professional wrestling, and uh, my exposure to the word pallbearer was the uh, TV character of Paul Bearer, the ghoulish man who uh, served as the manager for The Undertaker, the wrestler. And I, I you know, that gives you such a tainted starting point for what a pallbearer is. 
But as I've gone on in life, I've seen through other funerals and experiences I've been through that being a pallbearer is this very somber and reverent thing that you do, but it's such a private, intense thing that you can't really ask somebody about it, and so you don't get an opportunity to share about it either unless somebody asks you about it, but you know, it's this catch-22 of nobody is ever going to ask you about this, so it's... I don't know. If you've got an interesting story about it, write in. Let me know. I'd like to hear about it because it's it's a very unique experience that, um, again, to my chagrin, if my family takes any objection to this, I'm sorry. But I, I having done it myself, um, felt that I had some unique perspective that I could share about it. Otherwise, it's it's everybody's unique experience that they that they have their own take on it and their own involvement. So hopefully, you've been able to get something out of this. But it's. It's an interesting part of the funeral rite that uh, that I'm glad I was able to, to uh, do some research on and find out more about. So hopefully you found this as uh, interesting and uh, insightful as I have. But as always, I, I can't thank you enough for listening, and uh, I will have an episode up for next week. We'll be switching tacks, of course, like I said, to go from something that is much more physically-minded and earthly-based as the funeral and find something a little more esoteric and... Uh, non, um, oh, I don't know. I'm not going to pigeonhole myself yet because I'd like to allow for inspiration to strike. And uh, if the right thing comes at the right time, I'll certainly be able to do so, but I've got other plans. So, um, thank you as always for listening. I will, uh, talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.